you're listening to Underworld, a true crime podcast. Underworld uncovers the most notorious crime bosses, kingpins and gangsters from across the world. Welcome to the Underworld. Detroit in the 1980s was a dangerous and volatile place. In 1985, 636 murders gave it the highest murder rate in the nation's largest cities, almost twice that of Chicago. By the end of 1986, the number had increased by 10 more than the previous year. Among them, the deaths of 43 children under the age of 16. The violence, which started climbing in the early 1980s, created an anger across Detroit. The blame pointed at the flight of middle-class white and black residents moving out of the suburbs, leaving no stabilising forces to fight for the city or to offer role models to younger, poorer youths. Police and court officials say the rise of crime was due to the volatile mix of no jobs, poverty, guns and drugs. Two men who rose from the crime-ridden streets of Detroit were Demetrius Big Meech Flannery and Terry Southwest T. Flannery. Emerging in the late 70s and becoming popular through the 80s and 90s with groups such as NWA and world-famous artists such as Tupac Shakur and Biggie Smalls, by the 2000s, hip-hop music had established itself as a juggernaut in the music industry. Record labels and crews popped up from the States all across America. Almost no one batted an eyelid when an obscure but well-funded label emerged from Atlanta. However, they hit the scene like they meant business. They were opulent and lavish, arriving to exclusive clubs in most major cities in luxury supercars and dripping in diamond jewellery. They took over VIP areas in the clubs in droves and bought out the bars, swigging $2,000 bottles of champagne like it was water. That was the business, and that was the culture. The label BMF Entertainment was set up by Demetrius Flannery in the 2000s and had established itself firmly within hip-hop by 2005, the brand had taken hold, often being associated with A-list artists and stars such as Young Jeezy, Fabulous and Jay-Z. At the peak of their popularity, billboards that read, The World is BMFs could be seen throughout major American cities. The luxurious lifestyle that Demetrius Flannery and the Black Mafia family led seemed to be testament to their success with the record label and the artists they had uncovered and promoted. However, the real reason for their success cast a darker shadow. After several years of covert law enforcement surveillance, it was uncovered that the entertainment label was a front to launder the millions of dollars they were earning from distributing hundreds of kilos of cocaine and marijuana. By investing the huge amounts of dirty drug money into the record label, it was a way of legitimizing their income behind a very public disguise. Over the course of 15 years, the Black Mafia family had made over $200 million from trafficking cocaine through America. As the investigation unfolded, 150 members of the BMF were indicted and the Black Mafia family was named as one of the largest domestic drug distribution networks in the US history. The BMF organization was structured like a corporate company. At the top, they had their CEOs, COOs and CFOs. 
Underneath them, they had the regional managers who oversaw operations in cities and states. And then, beneath them, logistics managers and couriers who transported the drugs to customers. At one point, the FBI estimated that the BMF had over 500 employees situated across the states. The philosophy is what made them so successful. Rather than seeing themselves as outlaws and drug lords, they ran the operation like a legitimate business, through careful planning and preparation. They focused on making money, rather than being seen as gangsters. At the head of the BMF organization was Demetrius Big Meech Flannery. He was the face of the Black Mafia family, the affable and press-friendly CEO. He had a bigger-than-life persona and was not afraid of being in the public eye. Terry Southwest T. Flannery was Demetrius's younger brother and had no interest in such attention. He preferred to work in the shadows. Seldom seen, he was the architect, planner and mastermind behind the operation. Terry was every bit as capable and influential as his brother, but tended to try to fly under the radar and keep his profile as low as possible. Demetrius Edward Flannery was born in Cleveland, Ohio on June the 21st, 1968, and his brother, Terry Lee Flannery, was born on January the 10th, 1972 in Detroit, Michigan, after their parents relocated to Detroit in the early 70s. The family was poor. Like many residents of the area at the time, Demetrius and Terry's parents often struggled to put food on the table and would go days without gas because they couldn't afford to pay the bills. Demetrius soon worked out that a job at McDonald's just wasn't going to cut it, and looked into other routes to provide for himself and his family. Demetrius and Terry began their criminal careers by peddling $50 bags of crack cocaine on the streets of Ecorse, Michigan, and South Detroit in their high school years in the late 1980s. They ran a small crew who would peddle the drug at local high schools and on street corners. They're at the time associated with another drug trafficking street crew, called the Puritan Avenue Boys, and through this, they'd been on the DEA's radar for some time. Demetrius was arrested in 1994, however, there wasn't enough evidence to charge him. The authorities were well aware of the prowess of the Flannery brothers for many years, before they developed into the major players they would eventually become. From the onset, Meech and Terry proved to be resourceful and meticulous businessmen, capable of making the most out of every possible opportunity. When Terry was in his 20s, he was an innocent bystander at a shootout between gang members. A stray bullet grazed his eye, and surgeons botched the operation, and he was awarded a cash settlement. Terry used the money to establish a limousine service in Detroit. He used the business not only as a legitimate source of income, but also as a way of concealing and transporting drugs and money around the country. At the time, the DEA and the FBI saw the Flannery brothers as mid-level players working within a much larger organization, but investigations would uncover something much bigger. The IRS looked into a decade's worth of tax returns and discovered that the brothers' business had never paid tax. Each man had several aliases with fictitious driver's licenses from multiple states. Terry owned a mansion in the hills of Los Angeles and Demetrius had properties throughout Atlanta with numerous luxury vehicles parked in the driveway. The decade-long investigation into the BMF was complex. 
Hundreds of agents from branches of the local and federal law enforcement across the states had to join forces to track down the members of the Black Mafia family. With the constant threat of law enforcement, snitching and violence, Meech and Terry Flannery needed unwavering loyalty from their underlings. Meech's generosity played a big part in ensuring that everyone remained on his side. Meech treated everyone from maids to bodyguards with lavish gifts including cars and jewellery. Corporations employ the same methods and incentives with bonuses to keep their employees safe and happy, and in the criminal underworld, Meech deployed the same reasoning. When crew members were arrested and jailed, their family members were given a monthly stipend so they would not suffer financially. The mother of Benjamin Johnson, a BMF member who was due to be incarcerated, was given $6,000 a month by Terry Flannery. Loyalty was earned by reward rather than punishment. Through extravagant parties and luxurious gifts, every member of the BMF felt like they were part of something exciting. Even the lowest level members of the Black Mafia family had status. During an interview, Meech was quoted as saying, If you have a boss that robs, then you're going to get a crew who robs. If you've got a boss who knows how to take the bad with the good and knows how to show his crew how to be men, then that's what you get. Everybody's shining like new money. By the late 90s, the Black Mafia family had grown from a million-dollar-a-year business to a million-dollar-a-week business. This type of growth could only be attained by cutting out middlemen and getting closer to the source. Traditionally, the wholesale drug market was not usually controlled by African Americans. Connections needed to be made with the Mexican drug traffickers who could supply huge quantities of pure, uncut cocaine. Flannery headed to Los Angeles to seek a connection with the cartels and was introduced to Wayne Joyner, who had connections with the Mexicans. Joyner soon became the key person in the organization who could open channels between the cartels and the BMF. Securing a relationship with the Mexican cartels meant that the Flannery brothers now had an almost endless supply of uncooked cocaine that was significantly cheaper than if bought in the United States. They were purchasing a kilo of cocaine for around $15,000, which if purchased from a supplier in the US would cost around $70,000. The BMF was shifting around 600 kilos a month, meaning that they had cornered the market and could afford to undercut almost every supplier in the States. They expanded their enterprise across America and established hubs in 11 states so that the cocaine could be moved quickly and in almost any direction. Terry Flannery relocated to Los Angeles to receive the shipments from Mexico, and Demetrius moved to Atlanta, the ideal spot to flood his product to all of Eastern America due to its vantage point in between the routes that flow from Florida in the south to New York in the north. Atlanta was also a big enough place to hide and had a large enough drug culture of its own so that the BMF would blend in and take over the already established drug markets within the city. The drug market, however, wasn't the only reason Meech was attracted to Atlanta. The city had established itself firmly within southern hip-hop culture, and major artists such as Outkast and Ludacris were attracting national attention. As it started to become more mainstream, hip-hop music in Atlanta began to generate more and more revenue. 
hip-hop music, as a business, had two very different worlds, the streets and the boardrooms. On the streets came the connection to the criminal element, and it was no secret that many hip-hop labels were established and funded by drug money. This aspect attracted Meech, and he set his sights on using his profits from his illegal cocaine business to conquer a new market. As the DEA increased their investigation into the BMF's operations, they discovered that three were secretive and loyal to the top players in the organization. Having an undercover agent infiltrate the Black Mafia family was out of the question, as every member was connected and vetted long before they would be provided with any of the family's secrets. Eventually, they got a lucky break, when they were able to obtain through a confidential informant the phone number of a lieutenant within the BMF called Benjamin Johnson. The DEA were approved by a court order to install a wiretap on Benjamin Johnson's phone. This wiretap became the breakthrough that would eventually bring the Black Mafia family to its knees. A couple of weeks into the wiretap, the Detroit DEA intercepted a call from an unnamed man, but the DEA knew it was Terry Flannery by his demanding voice and from the way Benjamin Johnson spoke to him with deference. Now the DEA had a way to infiltrate the upper echelons of the BMF. They wiretapped Terry Flannery's phone and had their man. To ensure that their business and product were protected, the BMF had stash houses located across the states they were usually mansions rented in false names in upper-class neighbourhoods where drug gangs were least expected. This meant that the drugs were not just protected from the police, but also from rival drug gangs. The stash houses were given code names such as the Gate, the Elevator and the White House. Perhaps the most famous of these stash houses of the gang called Space Mountain, located in Buckhead, the wealthiest neighbourhood in Atlanta. The sprawling property was set back away from major roads or streets protected by fences and trees and had a huge wraparound driveway, which allowed limousines from Terry Flannery's car service to pull up and drop off 200 kilos of cocaine at a time. In charge of Space Mountain was Meech's second-in-command and general manager, Chad Jabo Brown. Jabo would be in charge of all the comings and goings at Space Mountain, ensuring that orders were completed and dispatched. The two brothers used innovative methods to camouflage their shipments. Sophisticated compartments and traps were installed in the limousines and luxury cars that they used to transport money and cocaine. In the high-end neighbourhoods of Atlanta, automotive modification companies provide services where they can bore out certain spaces within vehicles and convert them into covert hiding spots. So for example, suppliers of valuable jewellery can transport their goods between stores or to customers with added security. Vehicle modifiers could weld a boxed enclosure underneath or in the side panels of vehicles, then make them pop open or motorised so they can be accessed with a hidden switch. The concealed compartments would then be blended in with the rest of the vehicle with carpets or paint. The BMF utilised this service, but it was not jewellery they were hauling. One of their vehicles, a Lincoln limousine, was used to transport over a million dollars in cash at a time. It was seized by the DEA, who did not find the cash for two years due to the money being so well concealed in secret alcoves and chambers within the vehicle. Almost every one of the legions of vehicles that the Black Mafia family owned had this sophisticated level of obscuration, meaning that they had a fleet of mobile drug and money stash spots that could be moved at any time. 
They also had very strict rules on who could access the vehicles. Only a select amount of people knew how to open the secret compartments, and no one below a certain level within the organization even knew they existed. Those who did know had to memorize a certain set of directions. For example, put the car in reverse, turn on the left indicator, then hold a magnet to a certain area on the dashboard, and then the secret trunk would pop open. This sophisticated and secretive method meant that as few people as possible knew that the hidden compartments even existed, let alone how to access them. It also meant that if any product went missing, they would know exactly who to look for. You're listening to Underworld, a true crime podcast. In 1999, Demetrius Flannery made his break into the hip-hop industry while on another business trip to Los Angeles. There he was introduced to a young aspiring artist named Barima McKnight, who was rapping under the name Blue Da Vinci. The two had common interests and complementary visions. Meech took Blue Da Vinci under his wing, and together they formed the record label BMF Entertainment. The record label provided perfect cover for the drug smuggling operation. The flagrant displays of wealth, women and luxury being a standard part of being a hip-hop label. It meant that they could flaunt their profits from drugs and no one would assume any different. They were just young, rich, successful hip-hop artists who played the part and lived the lifestyle. Meech also proclaimed that under the BMF umbrella, he had unified rival gangs all across the states. Bloods, Crips, Gangster disciples and various other gangs who had historically been at war had now put aside their differences to stand together under the Black Mafia family flag. Meech saw that there was money to be earned, and rather than fight over it, they could join together and share it. Meech's generosity meant that he didn't discriminate. History, age, looks, background, it didn't matter to Meech. If you wanted to make money and you were prepared to be loyal, then you were welcome in the family. With the stereotypical idea of a drug gang, violence is at the forefront of the vision. Across America, images of murdered young black men were flushed across the news, gang violence was reported in every city on a daily basis, and reports of cartel executions across the southern borders were perpetual. Meech and Terry Flannery took a different approach to reach out for BMF members. When they approached new territories, they presented themselves as businessmen, and with diplomacy, they forged alliances and established criminal gangs within the cities. The appeal of connecting themselves to a gang that rewarded them, rather than threatened them, was a much more attractive prospect, and this helped to firmly establish more and more loyal members to the BMF. The DEA wiretap on Terry Flannery continued, but it was not easy. At any one time he had multiple phones, each designated to a contact of a different member of the organization. In one raid at one of the BMF stash houses, 71 mobile phones were seized. This made it increasingly difficult to keep tabs on the movements of the BMF members. The DEA managed to keep a wiretrap on three of Flannery's phones and then pieced together what information they had. 
The DEA painstakingly listened in on Flannery's calls for five months while Terry laid out the foundations of the operation. BMF members, associates and co-conspirators were instructed by Terry Flannery to transport and deliver multiple kilograms of cocaine. In one case, in 2003, Terry had instructed one of his drivers to deliver an assignment of cocaine to Louisville, Kentucky. Law enforcement tracked and followed the vehicle and conducted a traffic stop. Concealed in the car, the DEA found 10 kilos of cocaine. At this point, the DEA could have ended the investigation. They had the drugs, they had the proof that Terry Flannery was the man who was directing the operation, but DEA, FBI and IRS decided that this was just the tip of the iceberg. Their mission was to destroy the entire operation and take it as far as they possibly could. Over the next months, the DEA compiled over 900 pages of transcripts from the wiretaps placed on Terry Flannery's phones. However, there was not one call between the two Flannery brothers. It seemed like the brothers were at odds and had some sort of disagreement. Terry and Meech had differing views on how they should treat their product. Terry cut his cocaine to stretch it out, increasing his profits by lowering the potency, while Meech took a contrasting outlook. He took pride in offering the purest cocaine across America and relied on this to attract more custom and more money. On the street, Terry's cocaine was referred to as Moe, as in the champagne. Decent, but modest. Meech's product, however, was referred to as Crystal, top shelf, prestige, and opulent. In 2004, Meech Flannery was on house arrest in Atlanta. His underboss, Chad Jabo Brown, was spreading the word to Terry Flannery's customers that Meech's product was much better than what they were buying from Terry. He told them that they should drop Terry as a supplier and become their customer and be furnished with a much better product for the same price. This betrayal angered Terry and he decided that the only course of action was to confront Jabo. Terry forced his way into one of Meech's luxury homes where Jabo was partying with fellow BMF members and a number of women. Terry chastised Jabo, shouting at him and waving a gun in his face, threatening him that if he jeopardized Terry's livelihood again, there would be severe prices to pay. This caused major conflict between the brothers, and as far as their business partnership was concerned, it was over. By 2004, Meech had solidified himself as a figure within the hip-hop industry. He had sponsored a number of young artists and had surrounded himself with up-and-coming performers whose star power increased just by association with BMF Entertainment. The Atlanta rap scene was blowing up and was now set to compete with the long-established labels from the West Coast and East Coasts of America. This was largely due to the willingness of Meech and BMF Entertainment to support and finance the growth. In particular, Meech pumped excessive amounts of money into the career of his protege, Blue Da Vinci, believing that with his backing, he could catapult the young rapper into global stardom. While other hip-hop labels were falling by the wayside and budgets were being stifled by major labels, Meech fronted over $500,000 on a track called We're Still Here, which, in comparison to the money spent, did not gain the traction BMF Entertainment desired. Meech still stood firmly on his all-or-nothing standpoint, believing that it was more fitting to invest $500,000 on one artist, go big and make a bold statement, 
then spend $100,000 a piece on five artists and have meagre and inadequate projects and not have the artists be recognised. Although We're Still Here didn't blow up as much as BMF Entertainment had anticipated, the hype garnered from Meech's big spending, street cred and apparent success attracted attention from up-and-coming artists. Blue Da Vinci was seen in the music videos for artists such as Young Jeezy and Fabulous, and was featured on tracks with already established rappers such as Jadakiss and Nelly. The DEA still maintained their wiretap on Terry Flannery's phones. They intercepted a call between Terry and his sister, where Terry poured his heart out and expressed his deep concern about the rift between him and his brother. Terry was fearful that Demetrius's bombastic public profile would bring unwanted attention from law enforcement. He was frustrated and concerned that the huge amounts of money being splashed around by Meech would bring undesirable heat to the drug trafficking operation. The irony was, of course, that Terry was the man who would ultimately be the person to bring everything crashing to the ground with the hours and hours of phone calls the DEA had recorded. As far as the DEA were aware, the BMF's sole territory was Los Angeles. The wiretaps on Terry Flannery never mentioned any other activities in other cities, and the apparent rift between Terry and his brother meant that there was no connection between him and Demetrius. The BMF and Atlanta were a myth, a ghost story. While many people claimed that they were connected, there was no actual proof that they were present in Atlanta. That was until the night of September the 7th, 2003, when an opposing crew attacked a BMF stash house looking for drugs and money. Several members of a local gang targeted the house and invaded the home. Members of the BMF inside the stash house pulled their weapons and attacked the intruders and several people were shot. The BMF members dragged the injured home invaders into vehicles, drove them to the local hospital and dropped them outside the emergency rooms. While returning to the stash house, the BMF members cleaned out all guns, money and drugs from the property, or so they thought. A kilo of cocaine was found in a bank-style vault in a secret room in the house. Police called to investigate the shooting, located the cocaine and arrested one of BMF's key members in Atlanta. The man arrested was William Doc Marshall, one of Meech and Terry Flannery's key financial consultants. Doc Marshall was very important within the organisation. He was the man in charge of figures and finances, the equivalent to a CFO in a major business operation. He knew how to tape finance, keep track of earnings and make the dirty money clean again. He was in charge of purchasing the multiple houses the BMF owned and covering up the ownership so that they could not be traced back to the operation. During the raid on the stash house, police found a notepad with an extensive list of phone numbers, names and figures. Each was a detailed record of who owed them money, how much cocaine they purchased and the dates and times that the orders would need to be fulfilled. This gave the DEA a literal list of associates, customers and members of the Black Mafia family. The shooting incident at the stash house in Atlanta was the city's first taste of the Black Mafia family, but would certainly not be the last. Meech himself would appear on the news headlines a few months later for his alleged involvement in the high-profile double homicide. On November 12, 2004, Meech was treated in the emergency room for a gunshot wound to his buttocks. Earlier that night, outside one of Atlanta's most prestigious nightclubs, Club Chaos, hip-hop moguls Sean P. Diddy and Coombs bodyguard Anthony Wolfe Jones were shot and killed in an altercation. Anthony Jones was a tough street guy from New York 
who had a reputation for his quick temper and trigger-happy attitude. In Club Chaos that evening, Meech was hanging out with Jones's ex-girlfriend as Jones was not happy. An argument ensued, guns were drawn and shots were fired. Ultimately, Jones and an associate lost the battle, both dying before they could reach the hospital. Meech was initially arrested for the double murder, and a home belonging to him in Atlanta was searched with the aim of finding the gun used to kill the two men in Club Chaos. The weapon was never found, but a notepad similar to the one previously found at Doc Marshall's house was discovered. Once again, it provided names and phone numbers of clients and associates of Meech and the BMF. Meech's murder charges were dropped, and he was released due to a lack of evidence and the lack of witnesses wanted to come forward, either being too loyal or too scared. The Black Mafia family's reputation in Atlanta grew, and they became more imposing and violent. They would walk into nightclubs in the city with their large entourages and take over the entire club, and if anyone stepped out of line, there would be consequences. They took what they wanted, whether it be drink, cars or girls, and there wasn't a thing anyone could do or would do to stop them. There were stories of people being shot, stabbed and thrown off balconies. Wherever the BMF went, violence usually followed. Atlanta began turning into a war zone, with bodies popping up all over the city, usually being killed over money or even more minor altercations. The Black Mafia family's dominant presence in Atlanta grew and grew, and so did Meech's defiance that his hip-hop label could blur the line between art and reality. He knew the DEA were onto him and didn't care, he thought he was untouchable. In 2004, he commissioned billboards across the city that stated, The world is BMFs, a nod to the movie Scarface. This was the line for the city. Meech's brazen claims infuriated city officials, who gave the go-ahead for the DEA to put Meech under constant surveillance. A task force within the DEA was assembled with the sole purpose of destroying the BMF organisation. They used similar tactics as they had on the wiretap on Terry Flannery in Detroit, bugging the phone of one of Meech's low-level dealers in Atlanta. They put him under 24-hour surveillance and waited patiently for the evidence they needed. Diligence paid off, and the low-level dealer was traced to his boss and all the way up to one of Meech's most trusted managers, Omar McCree. As the evidence mounted, the DEA task force carried out simultaneous raids on known BMF stash houses. Drugs, guns and money were found in almost every single one. Meech knew his time was up and pulled his team out of Atlanta and headed to Miami and no arrests were made. Meech had pulled off the escape of a lifetime with seconds to spare. Meech's strict policy of never talking about drugs, being seen with drugs or purchasing property or cars in his own names had so far insulated him from any investigation, but now his world had crashed down around him and he was on the run. The DEA and IRS teamed up to uncover the layers and layers of money that had been extravagantly spent by Meech and the BMF. Meech and his crew turned up to the clubs in their hundreds and each member was bought a $400 bottle of Cristal Champagne each. Meech had a fleet of luxury cars owning the only white Mercedes Maybach in existence, which he personally had shipped from Dubai. Multi-million dollar homes were purchased with cash. Meech even threw himself a party for his 36th birthday, complete with exotic live animals, including an elephant. It was clear to see that the spending exceeded the amount of money a record label with one artist would typically earn. The IRS began to follow the money, 
which proved difficult as there were no paper trails, receipts, tax returns, or any deeds in Meech's name. As far as the IRS could see, no assets belonged to Meech. The authorities had to turn their attention to family members. The house that Terry Flannery bought in Los Angeles was purchased in his girlfriend's name. He also set up a motorsport company in her name, which gave legitimacy to the numerous high-end supercars which he owned. The IRS peeled back the layers until they could trace everything to Terry and Demetrius Flannery. On October the 28th, 2005, the long-awaited federal indictment against the Flannery brothers was finally ready. 25 BMF members were charged with a range of felonies, including possession, conspiracy to supply narcotics and trafficking. The Flannery brothers were charged with running a continuing criminal enterprise. The DEA based their prosecution on the wiretaps on both Terry and Meech's side of the organization. The IRS based theirs on the allegations that the brothers had been laundering huge amounts of proceeds earned from an illegal drug operation. The DEA and IRS had coordinated police forces throughout the United States and amassed huge amounts of evidence to demonstrate the reach of the Flannery brothers and the Black Mafia family. Over the years of investigation, they had seized over 600 kilograms of cocaine and $5 million in cash from cars and stash houses. Each time they investigated, they always seemed to tie back to the BMF. With all the evidence, they needed to act fast and arrest Demetrius and Terry Flannery before they got wind of the indictment and vanished. They had the means and connections in Europe and South America and could easily disappear. On October the 20th, 2006, intelligence provided information that Demetrius was hiding out somewhere in Texas. U.S. police marshals arrested him in a large home in Frisco, a suburb near Dallas. Police found marijuana, MDMA pills and several weapons. Terry Flannery was arrested days after on the 26th of October, captured in St. Louis, also in possession of several weapons. With 25 BMF members and their leaders in custody, the game was up. The death before dishonor mentality that Meech was so proud of began to crumble and his loyal servants began to talk. One of the key members of the BMF to turn was CFO William Doc Marshall. He began to lay out the structure of Flannery's operation. He filled in the gaps in the DEA investigation and how they transported drugs from city to city and who their buyers and suppliers were. With the information given by Doc Marshall, the number of defendants in the case went from 25 to 66 and the DEA was effectively able to dismantle the Black Mafia family. All in all, 125 members, associates and relatives were charged and convicted. Out of all 125, only 8 went to trial, the rest taking deals or pleading guilty. Two days before their trial, Demetrius and Terry Flannery also pled guilty and were sentenced to 30 years each. Since the Flannery brothers' incarceration, the DEA has continued to meticulously pick away at any remaining Black Mafia family members. In June 2006, 16 individuals associated with the BMF were charged with conspiracy to launder money and distribute cocaine. On July 25, 2007, another 16 members were indicted and sentenced to between 10 years and life in prison for drug trafficking. In December 2008, Fleming Daniels, a top-ranking member of the BMF drug empire, was sentenced to 20 years in prison, again for drug trafficking. The case against him relied on testimony from William Doc Marshall, 
who testified that he had witnessed Daniels receiving cocaine. He was also charged with the 2004 murder of Rush Hannibal Drummond. In February 2010, he pleaded guilty and was sentenced to 20 years for manslaughter, which were run concurrently with his 20-year sentence he had already received for drug trafficking. Barrymu, Blue Da Vinci McKnight, rapper and soul artist on the BMF Entertainment label, was sentenced to five years and four months in federal prison on October 30, 2008. He claimed that he was not aware of Demetrius Flannery's drug-dealing business until months after he signed for the record label. McKnight was released in 2011 and continued his music career. The last remaining BMF suspect, Vernon Marcus Coleman, was arrested in July 2009. He was indicted in 2007 for possession with intent to distribute cocaine. As of today, all 150 Black Mafia family members have been indicted and arrested. The BMF family membership well exceeds 150, but the DEA believes that the members that have been arrested were the core structure of the organisation and, without them, the operation is no longer sustainable. As part of their guilty plea, the Flannery brothers took responsibility for assets and profits of around $230 million, which conservatively converted into cocaine meant that they had transported and sold over 15,000 kilos during the life of the Black Mafia family. This meant the BMF went down in history as one of the largest homegrown criminal organisations in US history. The BMF may no longer be in existence as they once were, but they'll remain forever on the streets and in the minds of the DEA agents who eventually toppled them as one of the most opulent, sophisticated and brazen drug gangs ever to exist. Thanks for listening. Join us next time for more stories from the underworld. Underworld was written and researched by Gavin Cook and read by Chris Granger. Underworld is a Cop the Mic production.